0: In medicine and in science, there is really no such thing as an opinion when you're talking about data. What we have is hypothesis. And the essential element of hypothesis is a willingness that you might be wrong.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, Dr. JP Santiago comes back on the show to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and specifically the way we talk about it. We explore the ways we seek to make sense of the information we hear about it and how this is often cloaked in what's called observer bias, which is something we explore in detail in this episode. Like doctors everywhere in the world right now, JP is on the front lines of the fight against the pandemic, and what makes him stand out is his ability to explain what's going on in the clear and unpretentious manner of a teacher. Today he talks about how data drives the decisions and predictions that doctors and scientists are making right now. And how in this environment, changing your conclusions about how the pandemic works isn't a sign of weakness so much as a sign of competence. We talk about why naming pandemics is an important consideration, why using a geographical framework like China virus is counterproductive and can weaken the way we respond to it even as the virus began in China. We also talk about the complicated influence broad social forces like capitalism carry at a time like this. In short, this episode is an exploration of what we talk about when we talk about pandemic data and why the way we talk about it matters. We start by talking about how drastically this has all changed the professional assumptions of doctors over the course of the past month or so. Let's listen in. You know, one reason why I reconnected with you is that you post this great science-driven data on Facebook at least once a day, sometimes twice. Um, but one thing that I don't get as much is your personal life. So as a physician who's married to a physician, how are you guys doing socially and emotionally right now?
0: It's challenging because I think that uh, a lot of about how we thought the delivery of healthcare was in a primary care environment has been turned upside down. Six weeks ago, a sniffle and a fever was like the most innocuous of symptoms. That was a dime a dozen in my day that we would take care of uh, in a flash. You know, you look forward to those in your day after you dealt with diabetics and people who've had heart attacks and cancer, that a little common cold was like a nice little break in your day in medicine and primary care because, oh, hey, this is easy, this is common, this is benign, I can fix this. And now that very same set of symptoms represents this existential threat. Hmm. And it's a weird, it's a weird mental pivot, you know, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of threatening things out there, infectious disease wise, that doctors could get, you know, tuberculosis, uh, Ebola, if you were out there working in, you know, in the hot zones in Africa, but for something so innocuously simple and benign that you have could treat almost like at the drop of a hat without much thought to suddenly present itself as sort of an existential threat to your health or to the health of your patients is a really really weird mental pivot to have to deal with and i think for me those facebook posts are really sort of a coping mechanism i i'll be the first to admit i'm tr- i'm intellectualizing all of this to deal with it
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, to use some military metaphors, you know, you and your wife are family practice. Um, what's your role in this battle? You know, we, we read a lot about ER doctors and, and sort of their exhaustion in some cities. So as family practice physicians, uh, what's your role in this battle right now?
0: We really kind of see it as our mandate to keep the emergency rooms and hospitals from getting jammed with people who shouldn't be there.
1: Hmm.
0: Because... By virtue of what this, how this pandemic has evolved, there's a sizable fraction of people who have mild symptoms, who will probably never need hospitalization, never need that intense level of care that an emergency room or an intensive care unit requires. And so that's really where we as family practice doctors, primary care physicians out in the community fit in, is we're sort of like that initial battlefield triage point.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, we come and they come to us and we say, wow, OK, you know what? I think you're good to stay at home. Why don't you go home? Self-quarantine. Do this, this and this. And I'll get in touch with you in about twenty tomorrow morning and we'll see how you're feeling. Or we got the, listen, you know, uh, your symptoms really worry me. I really think this is something that we ought to have you go to the emergency room for because I have a feeling this is escalating. So if we were to continue that military analogy, because I really do feel like this pandemic is a a war, uh, those of us who are in the community, as primary care doctors, whether you're a pediatrician, a family practice doctor like myself, or a general internal medicine physician who's in the community with primarily outpatient, uh, an outpatient uh, scope of practice, we we really kind of see ourselves as kind of like battlefield triage, where we get the people who come to us first, you know cuz they're going to say hey do i need to worry should i go to the er well they're not going to go to the er to find that out most people are going to get in talk with the call call their primary care physician or their personal physician and say hey i'm worried what should i do you know this past weekend i was on call for my practice and i would have people call the answering service after hours evenings or on the weekend and i'd call them back and we and virtually every single phone call that i took in the past 7 days when i was on call for my practice were on Patients concerned about having COVID-19. And so my job was really to sit there and talk with them a little bit and then say, hey, go to the ER or hey, go home or hey, come by the office or tell you what, I'll have my nurse call you in the morning and say how you're doing. And that's really where we fit in.
1: Do you have COVID-19 tests or is it all – is? are you like a war triage doctor who's working on fewer data points right now?
0: We are sorely short of data points. That's There's no question about it. You know, when I pulled the data last night, the state of Texas is only testing eighty-eight, is doing eighty-eight tests per one hundred thousand
1: people. Hmm.
0: All right. By per, comparison,
1: per one hundred thousand people in general, or per one hundred thousand people who think they have symptoms,
0: just in general. So, if like okay. if we were to like a per capita um, assessment of like how 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 intensive are we testing, then for for every one hundred thousand people in Texas, we're doing eighty-eight tests. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, by comparison, you know, the state of New York is doing about 3,400 tests per 100,000 people. Hmm. And the South Koreans, which really set the global standard in terms of data gathering and controlling the pandemic in their country, they were doing somewhere on the order of ungodly number of tests. I'm escaping me at the moment, but I know it's quite a bit more than what most places in the United States are doing. And sadly, you know, being in in primary care, we really don't have a widespread access to testing. They're trying to conserve what tests we have for the sickest of the sick. I've I've talked to patients in the past week that I'm pretty certain they've got COVID-19, but, you know, they'll probably do fine. And, you know, I would rather preserve what limited testing capacity we have in the state of Texas for those who are really sick.
1: Well, I want to talk about data and just how it works, in part because I think non-scientists, non-physicians might not completely understand the importance of data and and how it's different than having an argument about politics, for example. Um, And so I want to sort of kick off this conversation by quoting three people or quoting three things that I've seen online. The first one just sort of talks about the way we talk in venues like social media. It says, I seek out news sources that flatter me, confirm my worst fears, and, blame, and lay blame <laughs> on people I already dislike. I get a real rush out of feeling that there are sides to this thing and that my side is rational and blameless. So that's that's one quote to consider. The second one I actually found um, through a biologist that, that you actually recommended I follow on Twitter, Carl T. Bergstrom, who says, there there's no gotchaism. In in science, he's talking about. Updating your predictions in light of new evidence and insightful counterpoints from colleagues isn't a sign of weakness. It's doing science. We don't stake out our positions on day one and then defend them as if our reputation depends on it. Rather, reputations depend on being flexible in the light of new findings. That's the second quote. The third one is a quote of you, JP. Uh, You say... There are still plenty of unknowns, and anyone who has full confidence about what's going on who is not a scientist or a physician should really sit down and have a nice tall glass of shut the fuck up already. <laughs> <laughs> I must have been a little punchy that day. <laughs> well, understandably. Understandably. So so why don't you riff on this just, just for the people in my audience who are really um, – who are seeing data come every day, some of it which might seem to be, or at least the conclusions might just seem to be contradictory. How should we as lay people parse the data that doctors and scientists are talking about right now?
0: Well, I think you have to understand that in medicine and in science, there's really no such thing as an opinion when you're talking about data. What we have is hypothesis. And the essential element of hypothesis is a willingness that you might be wrong. And so if I have a hypothesis, I'm going to go collect data to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. So from the get-go, you have to go into the scientific process with an acceptance that you could be wrong.
1: Hmm.
0: And so there's a difference, I think, when you sit there and say opinion versus Hypothesis, because having a hypothesis, if you're truly true to the scientific method, means that I'm gonna collect data to see whether I'm right or wrong, knowing, of course, you have to attach equal weight to the possibility that you're wrong. And so we collect the data, and then we look and see, were we wrong? Were we partially wrong? Were we sort of right? So you don't massage the data, you massage your hypothesis. So there has to be a mental flexibility about your assumptions at the start of that inquest that you could be wrong and maybe you have to change them. Maybe you have to change them tremendously. And so when we look at data on this pandemic, the key thing that we really try and avoid is making sure we're not cherry picking data to suit our own personal narrative of what we think is going on.
1: In a sense, it's, it's sort of a storytelling thing. As you were talking, I drew a little diagram on my notes, and it's like, in science you have hypothesis, data, and conclusion, and the conclusion mm-hmm. might not necessarily match the hypothesis, whereas in opinion you have opinion, data, and then conclusion. Usually the conclusion, by design, is meant to reinforce the opinion. And so you have these causality links, and we're we're sort of used to that that opinion causality leak. Where basically you have an opinion, you collect data to support the opinion, and then of course your conclusion is going to prop up the opinion. I think what's happening now is that doctors and scientists are throwing out hypotheses. They're they're collecting data, and then their conclusion actually is different than their hypothesis. But that's how science works, and so we're sort of used to calling people out for having a conclusion that differs from the beginning of the process when in fact, this is very much how we're gonna solve the problem we have right now is is altering our conclusions based on the data.
0: Well, absolutely, you know, and this is kind of one of the things that's, I think, hard for people who aren't in medicine and aren't in science is that this is really, this pandemic is really sort of unique In modern history, you know, the last pandemic of this scope we had was the H1N1 pandemic influenza in 1918. And what we have now that we didn't have then is technology and the ability to scoop up and collect reams and reams of data and to have the social media outlets to disseminate that data. And so this really is kind of a unique experience in uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the human history to have such an existential threat to humanity, but to have the ability to collect the data, share the data, and disseminate the data. So we're, in a sense, learning on the fly, but learning at a pace thanks to the connections that social media provide, whether you're in a group of just scientists or physicians or healthcare administrators or whatever the case may be, to refine your hypotheses you can crowdsource information with peers to prove whether your right hypothesis is right or wrong.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about just some basic 101 stuff, like what data is in, in, your, in your position, like what you're looking for when you look at data and why it matters. Because when you and I were exchanging messages, you said that sometimes you're in online doctor communities where the doctors – are you are they have a little bit of observer bias they they're bending things a little bit in a way that isn't necessarily useful or scientific so can you address the idea of observer bias what data is why it matters and how it works in your in your position
0: well you know observer bias is sort of a insidious thing i mean we're all prone to it you know we all want to believe something and when you deal with something like this pandemic that does have such broad ranging implications even to the, even to the point of life and death decisions, we have to be conscious of our tendency to want to believe either things are better than what they may seem or worse than they may seem, depending upon your worldview.
1: And so, what's and the so what's the basic definition? Is, okay, uh, yeah, I'm just curious about the definition of observer bias.
0: I, I I think observer bias is looking at data with already a preconceived notion. Gotcha. Okay. All right. It's 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 it's, it's it's the tendency to want to see what you want to see
1: hmm.
0: in the data and this is why we always with you know in, in college classes or graduate school whatever the case may be was you know we always tell people you know never stake your personal personal worth on your hypothesis because the data doesn't care the data will shake up any way it can and it doesn't care what your belief opinion is, it only presents you with what it is, and you, it's up to you to decide to accept whether you're right or wrong.
1: Like a person in your position, what sort of data are you looking for? And how do you know if it's useful or not? Um, and what sorts of things in the context of this data are you talking about with your colleagues who are all over the world?
0: Well, a common thing that we're looking at are trends. You know. How are cases growing? What is the case numbers in a given state, in a given city, in a given country? Because when we see trends, then we start forming hypotheses of the why, and then we start thinking of how can we change that. If I'm looking at a graph of the the way cases are growing in the state of Texas, then I'm going to have some ideas about why. I'm going to have some hypotheses why, and then I'm going to see if following the data reinforces what may be the case or what might not be the case. And if it doesn't, why? And in the context of this pandemic, if I'm looking at a graph showing the growth of cases in the state of Texas, and I notice that the trajectory is changing, then I have to think, why is the trajectory changing? If the trajectory is changing for the worse, is there something that we as a community, as a state should be doing? If the trajectory is changing for the better, is it because of something how we're doing in terms of social distancing measures, is it treatments, whatever the case may be. So when we see trends in data, we have to kind of figure out, well, why is that?
1: I think a classic form of observer bias, which is very much tied into gamesmanship and, and, and sort of performance on social media, is the political lens through which to find information. Um, and so like, should we, should we not listen to politicians at all? Or how should we, how should we react <laughs> to these arguments? I mean, even on social media, I have a lot of smart friends, but oftentimes conversations that should be about how to deal with this, um, pandemic are framed in politics so rigidly that in a way it's, it, there's sort of these, performative circus arguments we had before the pandemic that don't feel useful. So how should we learn to identify these political arguments that might be steeped in observer bias? And where should we look for more dependable information, keeping in mind that that information can change on how data changes hypotheses?
0: Well, you know, I've, I've always felt that politics is the worst form of observer bias, You know, when you start from a political viewpoint and then look at your data, you're already starting off from a position of bias based upon your political belief system. And so as a result, you're going to look for things to blame or solutions congruent with your political philosophy to solve those problems. And it's not that I think that there's not a place for politicians and elected officials to speak out on things. But I think that the role of elected officials in a pandemic is, number one, listen to your doctors, listen to your scientists, listen to your experts. Figure out what your options are, and based on their advice, choose the best options. And that's where the politics of this pandemic comes in, is making choices that affect cities, uh, states, or whole countries, is really the domain of our elected officials, but they have to be based upon good science and good practices and evidence-based medicine that says, well, I think we should do this because I talked to my experts and they said this.
1: I want to touch on a couple of things that have sort of resonated with this political bracketing or this political clothing recently. There, There are a couple of things that you've either commented about in your own Facebook posts or in conversations you and I have had. One is how we name pandemics, because I think you brought up some interesting points. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how commonly it's called the China virus. I know that I got a letter from the State Department. Uh, I think Pompeo, who's from Kansas, which is where I live, he called it the Wuhan virus. Um, <laughs> uh, yep. I, I Speaking of Kansas, I know that um, you know, the influenza, the Spanish flu, a hundred years ago, started in Fort Riley, Kansas, but it was not called the Fort Riley, Kansas flu; it was called the Spanish flu. That's um, right. And so, it you made a very interesting argument for why we shouldn't root ourselves into geographical or even animal type descriptions for these uh, pandemics. Uh and you also talked about how the the World Health Organization has actually created guideline guidelines for naming these diseases. So why don't you just give us a little education on one why calling something the Spanish virus or the or I'm sorry the Spanish flu or the Chinese virus is probably counterproductive and two what the reasoning behind the WHO guidelines are for naming these viruses.
0: Well, I think it it's a great question and I think that you have to look at the naming of diseases as something intertwined with that of human history, all right? And I've told you, I think our previous podcast, I told you that, you know, the evolution of viruses proceeds in lockstep with the evolution of humanity as a species on this planet. And I think that when you look at the history behind the naming of infectious diseases in particular, it really reflects that, progression, that progressive changes in our society towards different ways of thinking. Now, if we go back to uh, the H1N1 1918 pandemic, why was it called the Spanish flu? Well, it didn't originate in Spain. You're absolutely correct. It originated at Fort Riley, Kansas. The first cases of H1N1 influenza that year, 1918, emerged in March of 1918 amongst the soldiers based at Fort Riley, Kansas, and within a week, the cases had quintupled at the base. In the following month, a few more cases emerged in Haskell County in Kansas in the southwestern part of the state out towards Dodge City. A weekly health bulletin published in April of that year described the cluster of patients Dying from a very severe influenza-like illness. And as the months progressed from that spring of 1918, more clusters of this severe flu began appearing throughout the United States. The U.S. public health authorities were sufficiently concerned that they had advised the United States military to avoid packing the troop transport ships bound for the Western Front in Europe in World War One with too many soldiers for fear that this influenza would spread like wildfire on packed ships. And sure enough, they packed the ships anyway. And there were uh, troop transports arriving in Europe with 75% of their soldiers sick from influenza. In some situations, army units lost half their soldiers to death during the Atlantic crossing before they even landed in Europe. So the virus was introduced into Europe by arriving American soldiers. And a lot of countries suppressed the reporting of this new influenza epidemic because they didn't want to look weak during the First World War. Well, Spain was neutral during the First World War. And so they were remarkably open and candid in their reporting and their tabulation of the influenza cases. And as a result, that was the, really the only source of news in the world on this influenza was from Spain. So it became the Spanish flu. But unfortunately, that played into a lot of anti-immigrant anxieties in the United States back in those days. And this is something that we had really seen throughout the United States experience that uh, health concerns often were used as a justification for what were really kind of racist and exclusionary policies. A lot of the immigration statutes that restricted Chinese immigration to the United States West Coast in the late 1800s were really based on supposed health concerns. They would talk about Asian cholera coming to our cities, despite the fact that cholera had been a problem in Europe for 30, 40 years already. So the idea of naming infectious diseases after people and places really kind of has its roots in this sort of historical experience of using health concerns as an exclusionary criteria. And you really kind of saw that proceed through history when uh, uh, there was a virus hunter. His name was Carl, uh, Carl Johnson. 1976, he goes to the Belgian Congo to investigate a new hemorrhagic fever. That was killing both patients and healthcare workers in hospitals. And this is, and he, when he came time to name this new virus, he astutely realized that if he named the virus after the city or the region, he was forgiving it an indelible historical stain that would last for who knows how long. So he got out a map and he named the virus after a river 40 miles away. the name of that river was Ebola. Huh,
1: huh.
0: When HIV first emerged in 1981, it was called the gay virus. And it hobbled a lot of the early research efforts into HIV because of the prevailing attitudes at that time that stigmatized the homosexual community in the United States. The press even started calling HIV GRID, G-R-I-D, for gay-related immunodeficiency disease. And when it was realized that HIV wasn't limited to just gay men... The name 4-H was proposed for the four populations it was seen in, homosexuals, heroin users, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Gosh. Well, that's not much better. It's like That's like going from out of the frying pan and into the fire. So by at an international conference in the 1982, the CDC and the international community began to use the term AIDS. And so – this is you know the the, the the even the a lot of viewer a lot of people remember mers the middle east respiratory syndrome mers is what came after SARS in 2003 and the naming of mers was actually a very contorted negotiation process between the World Health Organization various countries and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia because mers emerged in Saudi Arabia the Saudis were anxious Please, don't name it after us. Hmm. And so after much negotiation, everyone agreed upon Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was the last coronavirus that affected the human population. But everybody was uniformly miserable with the name. So the World Health Organization in 2015 came out with a technical document. How should we name emerging infectious diseases? And the bottom line, don't name them after people. Don't name them after places. And don't name them after animals. Hmm. And not naming them after animals was an experience with the swine flu in 2009. The 2009 influenza pandemic was H1N1, the same one from 1918. The first cases of H1N1 in 2009 were in California and Texas. Well, nobody was going to go name this the California or Texas virus. (laughs) Good Lord, no, right? We'd learned our lesson. Well, the cases were near pig farms, so they named it swine flu. But it had a disastrous ripple effect on the pork industry in the United States as people were afraid to eat pork. Some countries catastrophically called a lot of their pig herds, putting a lot of small farmers and agricultural communities into dire straits as a result of a misguided notion that you could control H1N1 by killing pigs. So when the H1N, when the World Health Organization created their document in 2015, it says don't name them after people, don't name them after places, and don't name them after animals. So whenever something like this comes up, they actually get together and they try and figure out a name.
1: How did they land on COVID-19?
0: You know, the scientific name for the COVID-19 is SARS-CoV-2 because it's very closely related to the SARS virus from 2003. CoV stands for coronavirus. And two, it's the second coronavirus that causes a severe acute respiratory syndrome, which is what SARS stands for. But that's cumbersome. Can you imagine the layperson having to say SARS-CoV-2 every single time? So they they needed a name that was very easily understood very easily remembered and very easily said, and COVID nineteen coronavirus infectious disease twenty nineteen.
1: Well, it sounds like COVID nineteen is really winning the nomenclature war against the China virus. Although, you know, <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. I really would hope so. And I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've seen. It's been a while since I've seen reference to the China virus, though. In my last podcast, I was talking to a traveler. Who said that in Argentina his uh, his Japanese traveler friend found some prejudice because he looked Asian and they thought he was Chinese and they kicked him out of his Airbnb, and I think I read somewhere in the United States some non-Chinese Asians uh, were assaulted, uh, possibly because you know they were seen as purveyors of these disease.
0: I actually have had physician colleagues who are Asian have patients and family members uneasy. Talking to them because they were Asian and this pervasive notion of a Chinese virus.
1: Is that? Is you think it's because of the nomenclature, or is it because of the geographical fact that it originated in Wuhan?
0: Well, I think you can't get around the geographical origin of the virus. You know, that's that's uh, that's something that you can't like paper over with nomenclature. Hmm, yeah. But I think that when you sit there, when we sit there and name an infectious disease, number one, we need to be conscious of the social ramifications of that name. And so calling it COVID-19 is not about denying its geographic origins or where it originated or where the first cases came from. Calling it COVID-19 is number one, giving it a universal name that is understood by the scientific community. You know, the scientific community spans the globe, and we all speak in umpteen different languages, but we have to have some sort of a common terminology for this virus. And there are several different scientific names for COVID-19, but we all agree upon them. You know, if I'm talking to a Belgian researcher or a Chinese researcher or a Brazilian researcher and we say COVID-19, we know what we're talking about. There's a unified language there in the scientific community. But more importantly, I think we have to be conscious of the social ramifications of a name. And I think that when you give something a geographic name, you stand to stigmatize people from that region for a good long time.
1: Yeah. Well, fortunately, it feels like, at least in the circles I'm seeing, the the, the Chinese virus isn't really sticking, that there's... um. There's some random prejudice. Hopefully, that will that will end. Um, But uh, the the name Chinese virus hasn't caught on. Now, another kind of what feels like sort of lazy thinking is kind of on the other end of the political spectrum. It's not as nefarious, but I think a lot of people saying, "Oh well, capitalism failed us." You know, that obviously COVID nineteen is proof that capitalism fails us. And then, but then I have a a much smaller group of, of acquaintances on social media. Who are sort of involved in the, in the tech and the startup industry? Who are actively using capitalist methods to find solutions like vaccines and testing methods? Um, mm-hmm. th- their argument yes. being basically that if that if we as venture capitalists can find a way to pee on a stick and get a COVID test at home, then maybe we should do that instead of going through some sort of centralized organization. Now, I know that you as a doctor, you've you've posted some frustration with some. Um, oh bureaucratic hurdles including um <laughs> like the the corporatization of of medicine which is also a capitalist problem but then there's also capitalist solutions so how would you just for people who might be who might want to paint a very broad anti-capitalist brush on this how is the notion this very broad notion of capitalism helping and hurting our efforts with this pandemic
0: well i think it's if- I think the best analogy is to think about the difference between walking barefoot and walking with a pair of shoes on. If I walk barefoot, I can get a certain distance before it becomes uncomfortable. Now, if I put a pair of shoes on, I can walk a farther distance before my feet become uncomfortable. And I think when you look at government and public entities. Versus private industry, the capitalist entities, I think that they have to work hand in hand, that the most ideal solutions are not solely public health solutions or government solutions, but the best solutions are also not solely capitalist solutions. The best solutions are where those two sides can work together to reach a common goal. You know, we have a lot of vaccine effort, research efforts underway around the world. In the United States, two weeks ago, the first uh, COVID-19 vaccine trials began up in Washington state. There's a very vigorous vaccine research effort underway in Germany. And so those are private industry initiatives, but it will be probably up to governments and public health entities to standardize things like dosing. You know, codifying laws. Do we mandate the vaccination? Who should get the vaccination? Resource allocation are probably going to be things best addressed via government and public health authorities. So I think that when you look at the virus and the pandemic outbreak and say this is a symptom of the failure of capitalism, it's a very simplistic view of the world. And there's no question that I – There are ills that come with capitalism, you know, uh, the polluting of public lands, you know, uh, things like that. But I think that there are solutions present in private industry in a capitalist society that put in the proper context and framed with government and public health solutions get us down the road farther than if we had just been down that road on our bare feet.
1: Um, one sort of tangent to this, I'm just sort of curious that you know you work within a healthcare system that has so many moving parts, um, and you know has to figure out how to provide affordable medicine within certain insurance paradigms and certain overhead costs, and there are you know administrative mechanisms in place to manage that, but this is an extraordinary situation, um, and so. Is this system working against itself sometimes to, to, to deliver fast solutions or is the administrative superstructure working for the most part?
0: I think it depends on where you look. You know, I, I think that uh, there are locations and scenarios where uh, for-profit motives can get in the way in the efficient delivery of care. You know, because then you run into questions like, well, how will we get someone to pay for this? Well, if it presents a public health threat of this magnitude, should, should we even be asking people to pay for it? And so I think that when you look at how does medicine as a business in the United States handle this, it's very inconsistent. There are some, pl- and I think a lot of that is driven by uh, philosophies of healthcare systems. You know, every healthcare system is probably operates under its own version of corporate culture, and that physicians, unfortunately, that work within that structure are sometimes find themselves trapped in that structure. But there are also systems out there where there are policies in place and motivations from leadership that are enlightened and perhaps progressive in terms of how they should be delivering care in an unusual circumstance. Because you're right. This is, this is a highly, highly unusual situation we're being faced with. And so business as usual isn't going to work. And I think that when you see physicians frustrated with their hospital systems, I think that's their expression of business as usual is not working. And I think when you see physicians who aren't frustrated, it's because there's innovation and flexible thinking in those systems that is adapting to the situation.
1: Is somebody keeping track of this for lessons learned? I'm just, I'm, they just, again, there's, <laughs> there, there's so many data points flying around, but I just wonder.
0: I think it's turning American healthcare on its head. Hmm. I honestly believe that. The question is going to be whether those lessons are long-term lessons that will take the heart. I don't know. Time will tell.
1: Is there an attitude or approach that will ensure that we will come out of this having learned the right lessons as opposed to falling back into certain backbiting and um, dead ends?
0: Well, do you, do, it, it would depend upon how my day's gone when you ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the optimist, the optimist in me would say that, you know, this is a, a this pandemic may be a watershed moment for uh, healthcare in the United States, not just as a business and as an industry, but as for physicians and uh, the way we the way our, the way we deliver medicine, the way we deliver care. But I think there's a cynic in me that sometimes wonders that at the end of the day, it still becomes about the almighty dollar, hmm. and that maybe faulting this pandemic on capitalism is wrong, but maybe faulting capitalism for what we don't learn from this pandemic might be right. History is a very harsh judge, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Well, I have a lot of specific questions, including ones about travel, but I might break those into a second episode just so we don't um, pack this too dense with advice. So just as we round the end of this episode, I'm curious for your advice, for my listeners, as we find ourselves in this stream of information, in all of this mix of opinion and data and hypotheses that keep changing, what should we keep in mind? Uh, and if in doubt, what should we look for as we make sense of what's happening right now?
0: Well, I think that this pandemic is really a big lesson in the value of community. Um, You know, I think the last podcast I did with you, we talked about the fundamental social unit in Western societies is the individual. I'm going to do what I want. What's in it for me? What's good for me? And I think this pandemic is teaching us that it's no longer just about you and what you want and what's good for you, but what's good for your community, your neighborhood, what's good for your kids' school, your town, your state your country or the the whole world. And I think that as you see the flurry of news that comes at you now in the 24 hour news cycle, it's very intimidating. I have a medical degree and it still intimidates me. And I think Mr. Rogers once said that in times of crisis, you look for the helpers. Look for those people around you that are trying to help others. And as simplistic as it sounds, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's what are gonna get, I think that's what's gonna get us through all of this at the end of the day is a newfound sense of community. It's thinking about the greater good and the bigger picture and thinking about what's in it for all of us rather than what's in it for me.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Luke Van Tassel did the episode art. Thanks for listening. And I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.